0: Welcome to Clarity, hosted by me, Larry McCann. The following episode is sponsored by viewers like you. Larry, we don't have any viewers. This is and will always be a podcast. We have listeners. Well, then listen to this. We appreciate your support and need your help to keep growing. If you like the podcast, check out past episodes and share it with people who won't write negative reviews. If you're feeling generous, we have a tip jar on the Pinecast site. There's a link in the episode description. But just in case, it's tips.pinecast.com backslash jar backslash clarity. Once again, tips. Dot pinecast.com backslash jar backslash clarity. In case you're confused, don't spell out backslash. It's a symbol. Anyways, this episode is going to be a little different. We'll have our sponsor section as usual, but most of this episode is going to be the second part of my interview with Brianna. I know it's going to run a little long, but I really enjoyed my conversation with her. It's like when I go to the barber these days, there was nothing to cut. Man, Larry, these dad jokes, they're they're too much. Well, you just gave me a fantastic idea. But first, let's cut to the second part of my interview with Brianna. I think we're on the same page with Dr. Lysak, where I agree that there are some individuals like that. I will not dispute that. I just don't think they're the main problem.
1: I agree. It's not that they're not the main problem. They are a huge problem. But that's not hitting the nail on the head of what we're talking about. And that's where, for me, research and statistic and numbers, I always tell people, you, you have to look at the big picture. I remember when I was younger, someone said, And again, of course, I'm going to quote a statistic that I won't remember, but that 80% of car accidents happen within five miles of the house. I think I remember reading this when I was getting my driver's license. Make sure you buckle your seatbelt, even if you're just going down the street, because did you know 80% of car accidents happen within five miles of the house? And I remember a friend said to me, yeah, that's because 80% of driving happens within five miles of the house. So it's not that this is the danger zone around your house. I think when you're reading research and numbers, you kind of have to think about that big picture. I can't tell you how many times I'm in an orientation session with parents and a parent will raise their hand and say, what's the university doing to protect my child? If they're walking through the neighborhood and someone jumps out of the bush and attacks them. And for me, there are two pieces of that. One, wanting to remind parents, well, what the university can do is educate students on personal safety. But the flip side of that to me that's concerning is that the parent's main concern is stranger danger. And again, on college campuses, For the most part, that's not what we're dealing with. We're not dealing with stranger danger. We're dealing with two people who know each other in some capacity. And so, again, I think that's where if we were only focused on Lysik's research or that initial research, that we'd be missing the big picture and especially taking it out of context. And so do those individuals exist in his research? Absolutely. And if that was the only issue we had, we could easily identify that and eradicate that from our society. But that's not the main issue we're talking about. Again, it's not just our college campuses. Look what's happening in the entertainment industry. Look what's happening in the political industry. So it's not just our college campuses, but this is a product of society
0: that we need to deal with. Absolutely. Silicon Valley as well, which is, again, it's presented as this progressive mm-hmm. place, but a lot of misogyny and just terrible things happening there. The
1: military. I uh, mean, it's, it's it's pervasive in our society. So not just pockets of our society, which is why I think we need to start looking at where are those commonalities. And for the most part, and I know this is a big undertaking for the education system, but if there's one thing most of the US culture has in common, it's kindergarten through 12th grade. And again, the way I have conversations with my college students about consent should look very differently than how my friends who are elementary school teachers are having conversations about consent. But that does not mean that we shouldn't be trying to figure
0: this out. I can't agree more. And I think that's honestly what upset me so much about Lysak's research, where it's like, hey, here's the problem. Just deal with this. We don't have to worry about anything else. Everything Mm -hmm. else is just perfect. Mm -hmm. And. I want to tie it back into what you were talking about with education, where the students giggling about saying, no, my personal theory is that we're teaching them not to question things. The teacher said this, this is right. Mm-hmm. That is a fact. Mm-hmm. You do not consider the fact. You just absorb it, repeat it when requested. And I think that leads to that behavior where you become uncomfortable with anything that's not a yes or a no, an obvious answer. These gray areas, you're just not prepared for. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, not just that, but we're also not teaching people to feel comfortable talking about anything that has to do with sex or sexuality. And I want to be clear, sexual assault is not sex. It's about power. I'm sure there's a victim advocacy group out there that would disagree with me. But while there are issues of power, of course, involved in that, this is the unintended behavior that many of our students are taught, which is why they don't understand consent, But if we were a culture that was more comfortable talking about sex and sexuality, if they didn't giggle to say, how do you ask for consent? But they also are giggling when saying no, because it's the whole spectrum. Another aspect of the education that I do is on the hookup culture on college campuses. I always talk about with them, you know, how many of you make a plan and you know that when you go out with your friends, which of your friends have no intention of having any type of hookup that night? And even if you know, oh, my friend does want to have a hookup, but you can define what that means for them. That means if they come across a random stranger on the dance floor and they're okay making out with them, that that's their line. But how many of you are comfortable saying to your friends, you know what I would like to do tonight? I'd like to make out with a stranger because you feel shame about it. But I would say if you are engaging in behavior that is not harmful to yourself, you're not doing it because you're self-destructive, you're not trying to harm someone else, you are coherent, so you understand the choices you're making, then why not be able to turn to a friend and be like, tonight we go out, I'm finding the cutest person on the dance floor, and I'm going to make out with them. But make sure I come home with you. And it's so interesting to me because what I have started to find is a lot of the women in the group, particularly our juniors and seniors, so older women, are comfortable doing that with their girlfriends. But the men, no. And particularly not defining that because, God forbid, some of our male students are okay being like, no, I don't actually want a hookup. No, because they need to keep up this bravado. I mean, there's so many layers. And again, I want students to be able to have that conversation around sex and sexuality that's good for themselves. To say, I have no interest in hooking up. And to me, a hookup is this, and that's not part of my value system. Awesome. Or I'd like to make out with someone tonight. Okay, cool. Cool. And taking ownership over that, not feeling shame, and not shaming others because you have a different opinion or different decision-making than others. This is why they're also giggling at saying no, because they can't even talk to themselves about it. They can't talk without feeling guilty or shame. They can't talk to their friends about it, much less this acquaintance that they've now found themselves alone with. And they're like, well, do I? Don't I? We haven't even given them the tools to explore that for themselves. And again, that's separate than assault. That's just being able to choose. And where are they learning that? Very few places. I have a niece who's going to be a senior in college, and I think about some of the conversations I've had with her over the years. I think that she and I have had the fortune of my brother was very young when she was born, so I was very young when she was born. And so my brother often jokes that they grew up together. You know, he was just trying to figure out being a kid with a kid. And so I think she's been in a position where we have had conversations with her differently than most parents. We were raised by a very progressive, caring mother who I think also just engaged us in conversations differently than most I know this because I would come home from school and find some of my friends sitting on the couch talking to my mom about topics that I was like, I don't think I'd talk to my mom about that. But there she was, open door, like this person coming to talk about what happened on prom night with my mom. And I was like, oh, my goodness. you know. And so I think that trickled down to you know how my brother and I have interacted with my niece. And I think about some of her friends and the conversations that I've had with them because they've been afraid to ask their parents. And I don't recognize that that's comfortable. I think being a college educator for so many years has put me in a different position to her and her friends. But to go back on my social media technology, I think we've lost so much of the ability to have real deep conversations. We're so caught up in 140-character tweets and headlines and whatever BuzzFeed can boil down. If I give a student a chance to come and just sit in my office and talk— It's so funny. I'll have another meeting coming up and I'll think to myself, wow, I thought this student would be tired of me by now, but they just want to talk. And particularly, I find our young men, they come in and they want to talk to me about mental health, about relationships, about so many things. And I think to myself, wow, where has this person been in their lives that they're trying to work through this stuff with? And who have they felt comfortable talking to these things about that they're here talking to me? This morning, I was listening to a different podcast and I find myself really diving into podcasts that could go an hour, two hours, and I think to myself, wow, I can't even sit down and watch a TV show anymore without falling asleep on the couch, but put a podcast on and my brain gets into it. And I've started thinking, why have these podcasts become so popular? And part of me thinks it's because all of a sudden you're listening to someone have a conversation. And where is that happening for a lot of the population right now? I don't know if it is.
0: Again, speechless. (laughs) It's just wonderful. Your mentality, it's just a delight to hear. I, I really appreciate it. And I agree wholeheartedly just across the board where I honestly, I envision these episodes being an hour and a half mm-hmm. for that reason because I think that there's something where when you sit down for an extended period of time, you can't pretend to be someone else for too long. You right. know, the, the cracks start showing and the real person starts coming out. And personally, you see all these late night talk shows and it's very prepared or even in the political system. But when you're sitting down for 45 minutes, an hour, You can't have prepared answers. You run out of them. And like you're saying, that conversation is something that we crave and we desire. And And who
1: wants canned answers? I mean, again, it goes back to when I developed the curriculum for the students. I said to them, what do you want? They know that a stranger jumping out of a bush and forcing themselves upon you is rape. They know that no means no. But it's not about what they know. Sit down and let's dialogue. One of the best compliments I've ever gotten from a student who walked into the workshop and arms were crossed and you could tell he was like, I can't believe I'm required to be here. And at the end of the 90 minutes, he actually came up to me and said, hey, thank you. I thought this was going to be like really luxury, but this was really good. A member of our university newspaper staff said to the man who advises, after I came and did the workshop with the staff of the newspaper, and he came to me, he said, I want you to know, and he goes, I don't get a lot of compliments from this team about education on campus. And he said, but this person said, I was expecting canned answers, and instead I got real dialogue. Hey, listen, I don't have the answers. You know, I'm just a kid from Jersey who could babble about what's in her head for a long time. And I try to be really genuine and really real. And that's, I think, one of the reasons I've been successful as an educator, because I think students get that. I think they know. I'll be the first person to admit when I don't know something. So for me, I don't want our students feeling like they should come in and know these answers, because none of us know it especially when we get into bystander intervention, you know, and I talk to them, I'm like, we all have been guilty at some point of not intervening when we should. So let's talk about what stopped us from intervening. I'll give you ways to intervene, but that's not good enough. Let's talk about the scenarios. What makes it so hard? Because it is hard. But I think sometimes we shy away from hard. And I think particularly in the world that we are in with compliance and difference of opinions and right versus wrong and this versus that, I think it's hard, and people are scared of saying the wrong thing. Again, how many times have I had to preface something I said because I know one day someone's going to come and say, well, Brianna, you know, isn't that a victim-blaming mentality? No. I want, as an educator, to be able to talk about how we can take ownership over personal accountability because I think that's important. And I, I'm an oldest child, my little brother. I'm sure there are many times when I've quote-unquote victim-blamed him for something when he's called me and been like, this happened, and my first reaction is, oh, my God, but why did you do that? No, that's not what he needed to hear at the moment, right? But I do that because I care and I want to prepare him for the next time that happens. Same thing, if I were to go away on vacation and leave my front door open and all my stuff got stolen, well, of course, the first time someone says to me, oh my God, well, why'd you leave your front door open? Yeah, that was dumb, but now I can't change it and you're not making me feel any better. At the same time, eventually, I feel like someone should help me at least learn how next time to protect myself a little bit more. That's not a victim blaming thing. There are definitely aspects of victim blaming, but it's also, I think, a timing. If someone says to me, oh my God, your stuff got stolen? Well, like, why'd you leave your door open? Okay, well, that timing's not the right time, right? And again, I know it's not a perfect, you know, apple to apple, but I do think we get afraid to talk about these things because we're afraid to be labeled a victim blamer. We get afraid to start talking about alcohol because now we're afraid of being a victim blamer. I want us to be real and That's, I think, what our students want. They want real. They're the ones who know what's going on. They know that almost all of the incidents that are happening on campus involve alcohol. So if we don't talk about the relationship between, then we're just missing a part of the conversation. So I think that's hard. And I get it. People are afraid to have the hard conversations. They're afraid to say something dumb or something wrong. And I just try to embrace saying potentially something wrong and learn from that. Prime example, if we're role modeling being afraid of saying something wrong or doing something stupid, how can we blame them for not engaging in conversations about consent? Because what if they do something wrong or say something stupid? Well, that's the whole thing. I want them to dive in. Have these conversations. Don't be afraid. The only way you're truly going to know if you have consent is if you talk about consent. And there are ways to do it that might feel a little embarrassing and a little weird. But I always say, you know what's embarrassing and weird? Having sex with someone who doesn't want to have sex with you. That's embarrassing and weird forcing yourself on someone, and maybe you don't even realize you're forcing yourself on someone. That's embarrassing and weird, not having the conversation about it. And it's everybody, it's all parties involved. It's both parties' responsibility to get consent. And I think that's the other thing, is trying to change that dynamic, you know, and I know for our male students, they feel as if it's only their responsibility, but that's not true. And I often say to our young women, you have to remember, if you are interested in male partners, this is not just a man's responsibility. We have seen incidents where a young man thinks he's doing a nice thing and offers to walk a young woman home. And maybe he's like, well, you can stay here for the night because you're too intoxicated. And he's woken up in the middle of the night to her doing things to him. And when he's come forward, I mean, this was many years ago. I would hope this doesn't happen now. But the first person he told was like, you're a guy. Like, good for you. You can't be assaulted. No, that young man is struggling. He didn't ask for that. And that young woman didn't get consent. Again, while we know those aren't the most frequent cases, we also have to be able to learn how to talk about that. Because that young man had the courage to come forward, and the first person he spoke with laughed at him. Because, good for you, buddy. If we are afraid of saying the wrong thing as educators, then of course our students are going to be afraid of saying the wrong thing. And we need to start teaching them to engage in these dialogues and to, and to do that.
0: Again, I can't agree enough. And I do want to thank you for being that resource. I think what you're stating is so important. Mm -hmm. Being there and listening, not just lecturing. Mm -hmm. I think that's the key. And the male aspects of it obviously relate to me. I mean, just from my personal experience, I essentially lost the ability to cry. Mm -hmm. I try to be a sensitive and aware person, but that aspect of my life, which is a form of human expression, I just seem to be incapable of. Mm -hmm. And that troubles me. I'm someone who doesn't want that to happen and is aware of toxic masculinity. And even then, I've fallen into some of the same patterns. I think with your example about the male student, yes, absolutely, you can be victimized too. And I think a more extreme example is, you'll hear about 13-year-old boys in high school or middle school having sex with their teacher. And again, you get the same response. The boys, even adult men, will be like, great job, you're winning, you're succeeding. And no, that boy was victimized. Mm -hmm.
1: Oh, absolutely. And again, and how have we provided space for those boys to talk about that, right, and to come forward? And who are they going to tell? And it's just so layered. That's why I always go back to how are we starting these conversations in education earlier? I think we need to look at that. And the more places we provide opportunities for people, and particularly, again, I always go back from the student lens, because that's the work that I do, but for our students to, A, feel comfortable coming forward to report, and B, before they even get to have teen to report, comfortable with each other, comfortable saying, may I? And being really specific about what you're asking for, because you can't just say, may I? If we go back to consent, consent is clear. So it's about students or individuals understanding unambiguous agreement to participate in a specific sexual act. I love to tell this story. I was doing a program on the hookup culture a number of years ago, and it was a group about 150 students. And so I'm walking around with my microphone, and I said, okay, guys, so we're talking about hooking up. And I asked them to define hooking up, which is always hilarious to hear the student's definition of hooking up. But then I said, OK, so when we're talking about hooking up. You still need to get consent. So how do you ask for consent? And there was this student in the back of the room. And I know his voice because he had taken one of my leadership classes. And he yells, may I? I said, excellent. You know, and everyone kind of giggles. And I said, may you what? And then he just turned red and giggled. And then the whole room started laughing. And I said, it's not enough to ask may I, right? Because may I is not specific enough. Remember, we got to talk about clear. And if you can't finish that sentence, then you probably don't need to be doing whatever act you're thinking about. But it is about getting them to feel comfortable. I want them to be able to do that. And in terms of the revoking consent, if you've started to make out with someone and then all of a sudden you're like, hmm, I changed my mind, to feel okay saying, you know what, stop, we're done. Not to be like, oh, I felt bad saying no. I want people to feel empowered because you should feel empowered. It is okay to say no. And that just broke my heart the first time a student said to me, I didn't feel okay saying no. I felt bad. Why? No, friends, say no. Say hell's no. Just trying to teach them all aspects of it, because if we can get students talking about consent, I think that's where two things, if we're going to get students talking about consent, and then if we're going to get the rest of the group feeling comfortable and empowered to step in and be an active bystander, then we're going to start to shift culture on a college campus and beyond.
0: I agree. It is clearly a multifaceted approach. And you've talked about parents, education. From my perspective, media is going to play a huge role in that too. And unfortunately, it seems like in our media, violence is everywhere. Mm -hmm. Sexuality is pretty minimized. Mm -hmm. It kind of gets glossed over. What impact do you think media has on this discussion?
1: It's so hard. I think with media, even today, I was sitting waiting before our conversation, and I had two articles on my computer. On one side of the screen, this article about the USC doctor that I was having a really hard time getting through. The other screen was the breaking news of the latest school shooting in Texas. And I just sat there and I said to my coworker, I don't even know, I'm speechless. Mass shootings, so many of them happen on schools. And as a college educator myself, who has sat through FBI trainings on what to do in the case of an active shooter, I think it was three years ago on my birthday, I was at this FBI training. I thought, well, this is a great way to spend my birthday. My brother is a high school teacher. My niece is a college student. I have cousins who are teachers. Education is a big part of my personal life. And so to me, every time a mass shooting happens, period, it makes me sick. But the amount of these mass shootings that are happening at schools is just terrifying. And then to be looking at this other screen and here's this person who was trusted by students with their personal health and he's taking advantage of them. And it's hard. I think we're so used to right now nothing but bad news and violence in all aspects. What we're not seeing is a lot of the positive. And I don't think that's because positive is not happening. But what's also hard, and again, as someone who has a bachelor's degree in journalism, is it that the negativity sells? And what makes us as humans so Intrigued and focused on the negative news and less interested in the positive part of it is of course we want to stay in the know and stay aware and I also think not just media but then I think about pop culture. I think about some of the lyrics and songs and some of the storylines on TV shows and movies of course. Sometimes my students who work in my office will laugh and I laugh. I'm like, I don't know when I became a 90 year old crotchety woman, but I'll hear these lyrics and I'm like, are you kidding me? I was driving to work today and this is so, you know, and um, they laugh. They're like, wow, Brian, I I just thought it was a catchy song. And now all I hear is your voice in my head when I'm hearing these lyrics. But that's the thing, you know, I'm guilty of it myself. Ever since I've taken over this job. So I've been in this role five years doing this work and I went back. And was watching one of my favorite shows from when I was in college, which is Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And, you know, I just fell into a Netflix binge-watching. I was re-watching it. And, wow, particularly there's a season, if any listeners out there ever watch Buffy, but the season where she is in this really unhealthy relationship with Spike, who's another character, I, all of a sudden, was having a really hard time watching this because all I could think was, oh, this is not consensual, this is violent— Whereas the first time around I watched that, I didn't think anything of it. Now I'm trying to watch this random show that I haven't watched in 20 years. And it was really difficult to stomach because it's all I could see. And so it really makes me think about where are their messages. I think there are some shows out there I've been told I haven't watched some of them, but you know, sometimes I get emails from people, did you see the episode of such and such show that have tried to deal with these topics from a very real standpoint? And I think we need more of that. And not just where the incident happens and it goes bad. But maybe if we can get more in pop culture before incidents happen, and it's difficult, but then it turns out okay, too, because then maybe we're starting to teach how to engage preventive behavior and not just the responsive behavior. But
0: again, who wants to hear the positive? I don't know. Well, I think hearing a, a story that's exciting, too, where mm-hmm. the wild party times, obviously, they're going to be more exciting and appealing. Mm-hmm. But Can you think of any pop song that captures affirmative consent, or at least discusses that at all?
1: I'm a visual learner, and my whole life it's always been really funny because I can hum along to songs, and then when I start singing the songs, I never get the lyrics right. It drives my brother nuts, especially because I still have no problem singing very loudly in the car. So I probably won't get these lyrics right, but was it a year or so ago? There's a Justin Bieber song where he, he sings, this is one of the ones that I showed up at work, Totally Irate. But it's what does she mean when she nods her head yes, but she's telling me no? Or something like that. And I remember yelling in my car, she means no, then that's what she means. Why are you singing this song about, oh, women are giving me mixed messages? When really, no, that if she's nodding her head no, then she means no. That's what she means. Like I wanted to be like, song's over, no verses needed. But those are the messages that we're hearing. And I'm hearing this as a adult who theoretically's brain is fully developed. There's another song, and this to me, again, are we hearing anything but a healthy relationship in this? But it's by The Weeknd. I think it's called The Hills because I never really understood. But, you know, one of the lines is like, yeah, I'm only here when I'm high, basically, he's saying when I'm messed up is the only time I'm here with you and you make your friends leave before I show up. See, I I only know the theme of the song. I don't know all the lyrics. And I remember listening to that. And I remember my niece was funny. She called me one day and she's like, what are you doing? I was like, I'm really irritated. She said, why? I was like, do you know this song? She goes, oh yeah, I love that song. I said, have you ever listened to the lyrics? She was like, oh my gosh, I just thought it was catchy. I was like, this is so stupid. Oh, you make your friends leave because you're embarrassed by me and I only even come over after five o'clock when I'm really messed up. And oh, that's a great relationship. You keep singing about that. I'm so glad that you're making all this money off of this song and I'm here trying to fight
0: culture as an educator. It just drives me nuts. Absolutely, understandably too. And what concerns me is the 12-year-old girl hearing that and then considering that normal behavior.
1: I have a coworker whose daughter is 12, and she said sometimes she's singing along in the back seat, and you're like, what is she singing? It's nuts. And again, then I think there are fewer and fewer, not none, but there are fewer songs with themes like that than there were previously, right, before we started having these conversations. And so me being a person who loves to throw on my serious radio, 80s on 8, or even Lithium, because these are all the music that's part of my childhood and adolescence. And sometimes you hear a song and you're like, wow. I was singing along to that when I was eight years old. And just listening to that is so interesting, you know? So there's a Christmas carol, too, that people talk about that when you actually sing it, you're like, whoa, that is not okay. And this is just a lovely little Christmas carol that people sing There's a lot out there that is sending the wrong messages. And again, I'm not in the entertainment industry. I'm not a musician or any of that. So I imagine it's hard. You are trying to do your job and sell records or sell TV shows or sell movies. And maybe the positive doesn't sell. That's a problem too. How do we balance that? I don't know.
0: It is a challenge. And my producer, engineer, Will, he's a rap fanatic. Mm. And honestly, I'm surprised he can have any functional conversation with a woman. You would think the misogyny rampant throughout that genre would just poison the well.
1: It's nuts. I mean, it really is. And again, not trying to offer out the problems without solutions since I'm not in those industries and in those areas. I can't imagine that it's easy, but nothing's easy. My job is far from easy, and I'm sure I do plenty of things where I can do it better. So it's just about working together and figuring that out. And I think within your industries, you have responsibilities to address this. I worked in Massachusetts the year before the Red Sox won their first World Series, as well as the year they won the World Series. Here I was, this lovely, young, bright-eyed student affairs educator. I was on call one night, and all of a sudden, you know, I know that the games are on. I can hear the students chanting, oh, lovely, great, I don't care. All of a sudden, I hear this explosion of sorts. Then my duty phone starts ringing, and I realize that the Red Sox have just won unexpectedly. They're moving on. They didn't even move on to the World Series. This is the year that they didn't win, but they moved on to the next round. Well, all of a sudden, campus is exploding in riots, and I'm now going around to all the RAs and the buildings to try to provide them support. We're trying to figure out what to do. Before you know it, I kid you not, by the end of the night, I am being shot at by riot police while I'm hiding behind a desk with students. And I thought to myself, what is my job right now? I use the story as an example because this continued, and not just on the campus where I was working, but the streets of Boston. Then the next year, when they actually made it to the series and then won, there was a young woman, I can't remember what university she attended in Boston, but she died during one of the riots. And one of the things that irritated me so much about that was why didn't the Red Sox come out and say, fans, we're just as excited as you are, but this is not the way to celebrate. That to me was an issue in your field and you have a responsibility. And so that's kind of how I feel about this topic in all of these different fields. We have a responsibility and it's not easy and it won't happen overnight, but we have a responsibility to dive in. And especially on a college campus, we are educators.
0: And I think this is what I admire about you and I think makes you so good at your job is you're willing to admit it's going to be messy. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be a challenge. But that's kind of what life is.
1: That is what life is. Life is messy. It's difficult. It's challenging. That's just the way it is. There's no way of getting away from that unless you want to sit in a vacuum. And what kind of life is that? I previously worked for a study abroad program where I got to sail around the world with 600 college students. And there's that quote that says, a ship in a harbor is safe, but that's not what ships are built for. And that quote could not have had more meaning to me than when I did this job of the study abroad program because here I was embarking on 100 days where I was one of the main people responsible for groups of students traveling to four continents and all these different countries and was the only adult with them on remote islands. And if something went wrong, it was my responsibility to handle them and to help them. And maybe I didn't speak the language. And that was sometimes scary, but oftentimes fun. And it was certainly an adventure. That quote really stood out to me. And I think in a lot of the work that I've done throughout my years, taking chances is really important. And I try to educate my students on that, right? I don't want them to try to just live the safe life. I mean, I want them to be safe, of course, but how do I encourage them to do the work that they want to do and to do it well and to do it deep? And that sometimes means doing the messy work. And I don't want them to shy away from that, whatever career they're looking at.
0: Absolutely. One thing you touched on earlier is bystander intervention.
1: Mm-hmm. And I
0: think that ties directly into that concept.
1: Mm-hmm. Where
0: if we're scared to discuss anything about sexuality, it's going to be even harder when you recognize something is wrong mm-hmm. to be able to stand up and be like, hey, what's going on here? Is right. everyone consenting? Is everyone okay? I think that must be hard to even imagine for a lot of students.
1: It's really hard. A student once said to me, well, Brian, I don't want a cock block. And so I always respond, no, guys, cock block, cock block, cock block, cock block. And a student once said to me, Brianna, you have said that so many times in a workshop that I'm going to make a T-shirt that says cock block, cock block, cock block and like quote you. I was like, oh, that'll be lovely. Again, another proud moment in my life. My point in that is nobody has ever said, wow, this person came and checked in on me and said, is this okay? Are you okay with this? And then been like, wow, what a jerk. If that did happen, that person's probably really intoxicated or high on some substance, and they can't be consenting anyway, right? So it's a win-win. And after I do the introductory sexual assault program, I do a follow-up that's specifically on bystander intervention. And the day after I did a workshop for a group of students, I walked into the student union, and a student came running up to me, and she said, Brianna, have you seen the school paper today? And I was like, no, why? And she said, there's an article about your workshop in it. An editorial and it's really a great editorial and again I didn't ask the student to write it and she talks all about how she'd like to write this article telling about all the times that she's intervened for others but really she's reflecting all the times someone's intervened for her and how thankful she is and not just people she's known but complete strangers. One of the most frequent questions I get asked is what if both people aren't coherent then whose fault is it? And again, I always say, listen, unfortunately, that's a really difficult question that I don't think I can answer. And do I believe that that happens? Absolutely. And I'm really glad, again, that I don't have to be the person to adjudicate. What I'm more worried about from the prevention education standpoint is how do we just not get to that scenario? And the answer to that is bystander intervention. We need to be willing to step up and step in for each other. We need to be willing at least to come and assess the situation, ask if it's okay, follow our gut instinct if it's not okay, do whatever we need to do. I always joke, what if you see your friend, they're making out with someone that you don't know, you go over, you say, is this okay? They say, yes, everything's fine. But you can tell that they're both really intoxicated. They both start to go leave. You go and say, hey, I don't think you should go. No, 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 we're good. We're fine. We're good. We're just going to go watch movies, right? Because again, that's all everyone's doing, just hanging out and watching movies. To which I say, then your response should be, awesome, I'm coming with you, what are we watching? Are we getting popcorn on the way? Yeah, maybe that sucks because now your quote-unquote night is over, but sometimes your night has to be over. And I'd get right up in there and I'd squeeze on the couch in between the two of them, and that's how the night has to go. You're watching movies, then I can watch
0: movies with you. You mentioned one way of addressing that where you interpose yourself into a potentially dangerous situation. Are there any other approaches you recommend? For me, the
1: four things that I teach students, the first thing you can do is separate. If you feel comfortable going up and separating the two, you also don't have to do that alone. It could be, hey, come to the restroom with me, and hey, what's going on? Like, are you okay? Is this good? I feel good about this? That also gives you a chance to assess, are they coherent, are they not? If it's something you can't do, you're like, this person's not gonna separate, distract. Oh my gosh, whoops, sorry about that drink I just spilled on you. Or did you see what's happening on the front lawn of this party? Something to distract and to separate the two individuals. I think there's always no shame in figuring that game plan out. Then also, of course, to get support and resources. You don't always have to do this alone. For instance, let's say you're at a bar or a club and you don't feel comfortable because maybe you don't know the other person. Get a bartender, get a bouncer, find that support service. If you're on campus, feel free to call an RA or call public safety. You sometimes need to get someone else involved sometimes intervention for folks feels like it has to be them getting in there, but A, you don't have to do it alone, and B, use the resources around you. So I really work with students to think about that. In fact, in that bystander program that I do, I've used some of the clips from the television show, What Would You Do? And there are a couple of really good ones that I have found that show some folks getting involved or being like, I'm not comfortable getting involved, so they get the bartender involved so it shows there are different ways, and this is all still bystander intervention. But the idea is that you don't just do nothing. I often talk to students, too, about the fact that, I guess it's been a number of years now, but there's a very well-known case that happened in Steubenville, Ohio. Steubenville, Ohio is like many Midwestern towns where high school football is number one. After a high school football game, there was a house party. The next morning, this young woman wakes up If I remember the details, she's naked and alone. She has no memory of what happened the night before. She goes home, logs onto the internet, and all over social media, there are pictures and videos of her being assaulted by two of the football players. And I often tell students, it would be really easy for us to sit here and be like, well, Steubenville, Ohio, home to soulless monsters. But that's clearly not true. Steubenville, Ohio is probably a lot like high schools that many of us might have attended. Many of us might have been at parties like that. And I think to really get down to empowering people about bystander, I think we have to push ourselves to think about what made that house full of individuals not step in, but instead take pictures and videos. And even for the folks who didn't take pictures and videos to not step in. For each person, there are probably different reasons. Maybe somebody thought that it was okay. Maybe somebody was afraid because they didn't want to intervene on the cool football players. Again, we could go through all the reasons, but at some point, the question is, do identify yourself? What's going on with yourself and why am I not intervening? And then step over that hurdle and intervene. I have always had nothing but students come to me and be thankful that someone intervened, even if they didn't need it. That's the story we want to tell, not the story of this young woman in that situation.
0: I agree, and I think we have an immense power Not only as individuals to address someone and be like, are you okay? I want to make sure the situation's okay. But when the group steps in and says, why are you dragging that woman into that back room? Almost no one is going to insist on pursuing that activity.
1: Absolutely. Look at the Brock Turner case. I mean, these are two guys who were just coming by on their bicycles. They didn't know either of those individuals and they stepped in. That is huge. And I think the power of the collective is really big. If we as a community, and I believe that this school and the students that are at this school, they are a community. They do have shared values. And again, while I can't attest to every single individual student, I would say for the most part, these are a good group of students. They should feel empowered to know that as a whole, they all know better and that they all know what's the right thing to do. And that if one person steps up, the next person will step up. And as a collective, if they see behavior that is not okay and not part of our community values, that they should step up because they're not alone in that feeling. And that they shouldn't wait for someone else to be the first to step up. Students will come to me and they'll say, Brianna, I had a moment at a party this weekend that made me think of the workshop. And I love that that's what they identify it as. Or, oh man, the clear, coherent, willing, and ongoing. Somewhere down the road, students started using that acronym as coherent, ongoing, willing, and abbreviated to cacao. So I'll get stories. Oh my gosh, so we had a cacao moment in the residence halls this weekend. And to me, that just tells me, okay, they're talking about it. They're utilizing it. And that's really when you start to see culture change. You know, that they want to come up to me and tell me about their cacao moment. Okay, great. Tell me about your cacao moment.
0: Again, that's just fantastic and wonderful. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for sharing that. Now I'm going to express some of my own bias, Mm -hmm. where from my perspective, and I'm not saying this is universal. Both sports, collegiate sports and fraternity sororities seem to be contributing to a lot of these problems where now I get to throw out my wild stats. I believe it's on a home game day, Mm -hmm. I think it's the risk of sexual assault. It could be just rape, goes up 40%, Mm -hmm. on an away game day, 20%, Mm -hmm. on a rivalry game, 85%. And that seems like such a clear correlation that it would be a major issue but gets swept under the rug. And then with the fraternity sororities, it seems like students are more at risk at a fraternity party for sexual assault. But through my research, I've also found that members of the fraternity are also at greater risk. Mm-hmm. So it seems to be sweeping both ways. And again, I'm expressing my bias here. I want to give you the opportunity to, to share your perspective because mm-hmm. I, I welcome it if it's different.
1: Again, I go back to let's dig deeper and unpack research and statistics, right? So that 80% of accidents happen within five miles of the home. Sports and Greek life, I don't think are the common factor. And I don't think that's what that statistic is saying. But what do both of those things have in common? What's happening at those games? Tailgating, alcohol. What's happening at those parties? Alcohol. I think the common theme there is alcohol. And while Again, not taking away the fact that when I think about responsibility, so those communities have a responsibility. I think athletics on college campuses have a responsibility to be part of the solution and the culture change. I think Greek life offices and sorority and fraternity life offices have a responsibility to be part of the culture change. I do also think, because I don't think alcohol is the only factor, I think the other thing that those have in common, and this goes back to what we were talking about in terms of what we don't do well in society... But they're both based on very much a patriarchy. Even though sororities may outnumber fraternity men, these are still systems that were built on patriarchal systems. Again, not knowing those statistics, I would beg to differ that it's probably not during the women's basketball game or the softball team where those statistics are rising. I imagine that's predominantly at our Division One football teams, our Division One basketball games. And what are those based on? They're based on these male sports. And I would imagine, and again, not done the research, but I would imagine if you look at our ROTC, where ROTC does not share the alcohol aspect, but they would share the patriarchy and that power dynamic for men and that machismo and masculinity and all of that. And so similar to that Steubenville case, I would bet the majority of the reasons why individuals didn't intervene is because here you are your two cool football players. So I think when you're talking about incidents that are happening, part of it is the social capital that the athletes on campus hold, that the fraternities hold, that ROTC holds. But I think overall, if I had to guess, it would be that what that's really talking about is alcohol. It doesn't take the responsibility away from those communities. But I think we are remiss when all we say is fraternities are bad. No, fraternities aren't bad. Again, I go back to what have we done to educate to help them. And again, it's not just about giving them check boxes to say, do your risk management plans, make sure you put on an alcohol program. No, let's talk about that. Do they feel comfortable if one of their fraternity brothers or one of their sorority sisters is struggling? Maybe they're really intoxicated. Maybe they're struggling with drugs. Do they feel comfortable stepping in? Or is there some kind of unspoken, oh, no, he's my big and so I can't step in? Or one of the things that I challenge our groups on campus is what's happening at these parties. So you've got all your sober monitors. So who are your sober monitors? The people who are underage. Because, well, why wouldn't they be? Because that way, if we're 21 and over, we can drink. So who are your underage folks? Mainly your new or newer members. So if I've been in the sorority a semester, am I going to march up to a woman who is a senior and be like, you're done, you're cut off? Or hey, let me intervene? And again, sometimes the students push back on me on that. Like, no, we build a system within our organizations where they should feel comfortable. And I'm like, guys, that's just not how it works. I'm not saying that you haven't tried to build that system, but just saying it is not enough. Because I'm telling you, as a 19-year-old, they're not stepping in on the 22-year-old senior and saying, you're done, you're cut off, or you're being creepy, don't talk to that person anymore. So if you want that culture to change, let's talk about how we change it. First of all, how do you train your sober monitors? Secondly, how do you train the rest of your organization to listen to those sober monitors? How do you mix up who the sober monitors are? Let's talk about skills and empowerment Don't give me a checklist. Don't give me lip service. I'm not interested in lip service. I'm like half Italian, half Cuban. Neither of those cultures do lip service. Let's get real. That's what I want to see from them. And I believe that they can do better. But I also believe as an educator, we have to challenge them to do that. We can't just expect them to do it on their own. And I think universities have a responsibility for all of these organizations. Of course, our athletes, they're part of our university, but they've also got NCAA regulations. Our fraternities and sororities are part of our university, but then they also have these international and national headquarters. Well, they need to not just be concerned about these two external entities and what their rules and regulations are, but they also need to be partnering with the university where they are housed and living up to those standards. And I think if our university standards are higher than those external entities, then we're doing our due diligence, right? And if I'm working with a fraternity's national office, and I know that their expectations are here, well, I want to make sure that they know that our expectations are here, and that while they should be concerned about that chapter meeting their own expectations, if they want to remain a guest, because that's really what they are, it is a privilege to be part of this campus, then they also need to meet the university expectations. So again, it's messy. It's so many people involved. It takes time. You're talking about hundreds of years of culture, Some of these organizations were started in the early 1800s at colleges far away from here. And you're talking about entrenched tradition. And I don't want to take away tradition, but I want to make sure it's healthy culture. And the same way, for instance, I have to keep up with the times and change and learn how to use Venmo with students. Well, these organizations need to keep up with the times and change and be part of current value systems and not just the value systems of when they were founded.
0: Again, that's wonderful, and I can't state enough how much I appreciate your willingness to embrace complexity. Yeah. Where so much in our world seems to be oriented around simplifying everything, and that's just not how it works.
1: Nothing is simple. I can't think of very many things that are simple. If we're looking for the easy way out, it's just not going to happen, especially not if we want to impact change. There's a lot of jobs that I could do in this world, and I probably could make a lot more money doing all of them and sometimes particularly living in a city that is expensive to live in. If I take a day off and I walk around my neighborhood in the middle of the day, I think to myself, what? How do these people afford to live here? They're sitting in their flip-flops and their shorts, drinking coffee at noon. And meanwhile, I would typically be in business attire running around this university chasing after college students. And it's fascinating to me. But I am a person who wants to make an impact on this world. And that doesn't have to be the hugest impact. It could be an impact on one person or one student. But I find value in having a values-based job. And I do think that we can slowly make change. I've seen the change in my time with this program. And again, hearing the students come up and tell me, I had a cacao moment. OK, well, five years ago, cacao didn't exist. And now students are happy to tell me about that Great. Let's keep that going, and let's continue to push our boundaries and challenge ourselves. It's not easy, and it's so messy, but it's always going to be messy. From work to personal life, it's just messy, but if it's messy, it's probably worth it.
0: I wish that our society valued education a little more. Not just education, the people who are involved, Mm -hmm. you know? We really don't pay them what they deserve. And you're really doing a service for everyone. Mm-hmm. Entire generations are being influenced by this.
1: Ah, oh, I couldn't but- agree more.
0: <laughs> and I- I've taken up so much of your time, but I do have one last question I want to tie in where we've discussed alcohol. Mm-hmm. But in my own research, I found that it's not necessarily being intoxicated. That's purely the problem. I think that's a big part of it. Mm-hmm. But the relationship to alcohol, your expectations, oh, I, I can't hook up with anyone unless I'm totally drunk. Mm-hmm. What, what are your experiences in that area?
1: In terms of that question alone, it goes back to the idea of when we're talking about consent, right? It's awkward to talk about consent. So if I can lower my inhibitions enough, then all of a sudden maybe it becomes a little less awkward. I think the other piece that goes into this is we are currently dealing with a group of college students who have come to campus with higher levels of mental health, anxiety, depression than ever before. Our counseling centers are overwhelmed. You can't keep up no matter how many counselors you add, the amount of medications that students are on for anxiety and depression and other mental health issues, and what is a socially acceptable way to self-medicate alcohol. If I'm a socially anxious person, then I am likely going to get myself out the door to go to that party, to go hang out with somebody new by having some alcohol. And that is part of the issue. So we need to talk about that, acknowledge that, help students figure that out. We need to be able to have open and honest conversations about alcohol the way we have to have open and honest conversations about everything else. We can't assume, and I know we did this, we were totally guilty of this a couple of years ago, two groups of students on campus, the resident advisors, as well as our student EMTs, said to the Student Affairs Administration, wow, freshmen don't know how to deal with alcohol. And we kind of looked around the table and we're like, well, but your department does alcohol education, right? Well, no, I thought, your depart- I thought your department did, but wait, aren't they getting it in high school? And that's all totally innocent, well-intentioned. We all thought a different department was taking the lead on alcohol and that they were getting this extensive alcohol education. So again, we turned to the students, no, they're not getting that education. Not real education, that's when we decided to add another workshop into the series specifically about alcohol and personal accountability. Sometimes I get a call from a student who's like, well, I don't drink. Do I have to come? Yes, because you might not drink. And that's great. That's your choice. But I guarantee that eventually, if not already, you will come across someone who drinks. And I think it's your responsibility to still be aware and understand. Or one day you may choose to drink like everything else. It's values based. If you choose to drink, are you doing it because you enjoy it and you're doing it for positive reasons? Or are you doing it for negative reasons? And if you can start to identify those things, then that's great. Then when you're drinking for positive reasons and you're doing it healthily, awesome. And if you're not, then being able to recognize that or others being able to recognize that, giving them those tools, not just saying, you're 18, don't drink. Okay, I'd like to live in a perfect world where nobody who's under 21 drinks, except then I'd be a total hypocrite because I drank before I was 21. For holidays and special occasions like my parents' anniversary, we always had a glass of wine at those dinners, which is funny because I remember being like, oh, mom, I hate wine. And she's like, but you have to cheers with us. If my younger self could know how much I love wine now, they would find that so amusing. I think that self-reflection in all topics and giving people tools to look within Maybe this is the counselor in me. As I said, my master's degree is both in administration and counseling, but also I'm a big proponent of therapy. One of the other things I think not just students, students and my colleagues often come to me about. I've been very open about my own struggles with depression and anxiety. And so I think for me, maybe it's that idea that some of the work that you do in therapy gives you the chance to really think through the behaviors and the choices you're making and try to be more intentional and try to feel more comfortable being vulnerable and talking about that. That's probably a big part of my educational approach, but if you can't be vulnerable and have these conversations about any of this, if I can't allow a student to walk in and say, I'm confused, why is this scenario not consensual? And then allow one of their peers to say, are you kidding me? You can't see why that's not consensual? And then someone else to say, well, oh, I don't know, I see both sides. and Okay, I've now just given them an opportunity to have a dialogue on a really difficult topic and now, hopefully, I've also allowed them to build some skills so that when they are in the throes of things, that they are able to have some of these conversations because they've already done it in these workshops. And that's hard. I think as educators, we get really worried like, oh, God, what if someone says something what if something? But it's hard. And I think that's why we're trained to do the work that we do. And I think we need to be comfortable being uncomfortable because then we teach our students to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And that's the only way we're going to make progress is letting ourselves be vulnerable I think we need to work with our students to have a healthier relationship with alcohol if they're going to choose to drink. And
0: again, have it be ongoing.
1: Always, because guess what? The other thing is you could be having a healthy relationship with alcohol at 18 and then all of a sudden at 24 an unhealthy relationship. And so we can't just assume that just because someone's 21 now that they've got this. You can't just do all this education when students enter as freshmen or enter as transfer students and then be done. They're still developing the whole time they're here. And we can create layered education that takes them to the next level and challenges them further. And we should, because then hopefully what we're doing is we're sending them off campus when they graduate with a deep set of skills. And then from there, they hopefully can bring that to wherever they're going. And maybe we can start to influence other functional areas, other industries, because we're sending our students out with those skills. I think
0: it's wonderful. And again, you, you can have me speechless where <laughs> I, I think you're just providing such a wonderful, not only service, but you have the right mentality as well. Everything is coming together in a way that I truly appreciate. Well, so, thank you. But no, thank you. It's been a long
1: road coming, but you know, you just got to keep working at it. My advice to other educators out there, always bring your students to the table, always get their feedback. Don't be defensive about it. If it's not working, that's not a problem. If it's not working, okay, what is going to work? Don't be afraid to have the difficult conversations and find yourself a team. Find yourself a team of colleagues around the university who can be your army of educators. The first year I tried to do this all myself and I went to my supervisor and I said, I'm exhausted. Eventually the students are going to be tired of hearing from me, but there's only so many 90-minute workshops I can give in a week. It's really about being a team effort, and also one of the other things we've done at this institution is, as the person who oversees the prevention education services, I'm not the only person providing them this education. The director of judicial affairs, the director of orientation, the associate director of campus recreation, the assistant director in housing, they walk in and they're like, oh, I saw you in this other realm, but yet here you are having a conversation with me about alcohol or having a conversation with me about consent. That's Great. The same thing when we talk about intercultural dialogue. When it's not just our staff in ethnic and intercultural services that are providing that education, but they see that everyone is providing that education, let's talk about holistic learning. And that also creates a wider web that when students are struggling, they know there are more people out there to help them, that there are a lot of offices they could go to. For me, that's really the thing. And I'm fortunate that I work at a place that supports all of that and has let me build it that way. I think schools have to be patient with themselves and know that it takes time, but it can be really worth it. And it has been really worth it. And I also say be creative and have fun. Our alcohol education program uses a BuzzFeed video. It's hilarious. I think when the students see that I start to put on this beginning of this BuzzFeed, like, oh, okay, this is not gonna be your typical alcohol education program, right? Or when we start to talk about consent and they see that they're gonna be part of the dialogue, what we've tried to do is make it real conversations that relate to the student experience and how they dialogue. So I always like to say have fun. Even with the difficult topics, you can have a lot of fun with it and really show students that they can talk about these things. It's okay.
0: It is truly an amazing program you're describing, and I hope that's the case at more college campuses. Me too. I think it'll really turn everything around. Mm -hmm. So I've asked you so many questions and taken up so much of your time. I want to give you the opportunity, unprompted, if there's anything you want to say, anything left.
1: Oh, you know, no. I, I mean, I uh, I just really um, want to thank you for letting me have the floor. And you know, I've got a lot to say, a lot in my head. As an introvert, I spend most of my life in my head especially because I do so much presenting. So then when I'm not presenting, I really start to retreat into my brain. So sometimes when I get on a roll, it just all comes out at once. So thanks for having me and letting me be here. And hopefully if there's anything else I can ever do, I just i am always, always looking to be part of the conversation.
0: It was truly a pleasure having a conversation with you, Brianna. Thank, Thank you so you. much.
1: Thank you. Have a good day. You
0: as well. Enjoyed both parts of my interview with Brianna. If you enjoyed her perspective or have any feedback, please let us know. LarryMecanam at gmail.com. But right now, let's move on to our sponsorship section. Here at Clarity, we don't recognize Patriarchy Day, but we do respect and admire fathers. To show that appreciation, I'm releasing a book of dad jokes. Here are some of my favorites. How much are dads willing to pay for tennis lessons? Not even a penny. It's a racket. If you like that one, from page 234, what's the ideal temperature of a house? Whatever I said it to, don't you ever, ever touch the thermostat. And finally, on page 8733, why do dads wear big silly hats? Skin cancer is no laughing matter. If you like those jokes, there's several thousand more. Order your copy today.